you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 44. Genesis chapter 44, we'll read verses 1 through 13. Lend your attention, this is God's word. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city, now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we will also be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Thus far the reading of God's word. You can turn in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 9. We finished the second string of three miracle accounts in this larger section of uh, three sets of three miracle accounts. And if you recall, the end of the first string of three closed with the discussion on discipleship. Uh, and likewise here, we get a discussion on discipleship, which is again a reminder that the Lord's goodness and power is not simply to be witnessed, but is the reason which he sets forth for his worth. He is worthy to be followed. Everything the Lord does is with the purpose of making for himself not spectators, but disciples. And so this ongoing discussion on discipleship. So we come to Matthew chapter 9. We'll read verses 9 through 13. This is God's word. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. 
And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Father, how humbling this episode is as we uh, consider that we are the sick in desperate need of the great physician. And as we also consider that uh, so frequently we look upon others not with the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the cruelty of his opponents. And thus, Lord, we are doubly humbled. And so we pray, Lord, that as your word goes forth, as plain as it is, Lord, so plainly would be the conviction, the conviction that the Lord Jesus Christ is mighty to save, the conviction that we are indeed in need of a physician, and the conviction that indeed our sin is foul. So we pray, Lord, that you would do what we cannot do, that you would heal, that you would do, Lord, what we cannot do, and that you would bring life. How good you are, Lord, to do these things. How undeserving we are, Lord, and yet how wonderful that you have made us the object of your love and your mercy. So fill our hearts with awe at this, Lord. Humble our hearts at the thought of this and bring forth hearts of mercy, Lord, pale reflections of the one who is infinite in grace and mercy. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. On a number of occasions, we've considered the end of Kristen Lavrensdata, that great novel about medieval Norway. At the end of the novel, the plague comes to Norway. The Black Plague comes to Nor Norway, and nearly everyone loses their mind in fear. I'm sure it's not hard to see why. Just a little bit of imagination. People are getting sick everywhere. Quickly as the disease is spreading, so fear and cruelty is spreading. It's a dreadfully difficult time. It's a historical episode rendered novelistically, but again, this took place, and it's not hard for us to see why it would take place. You know that there is just a hair's breadth between fear and hatred. Those two things so frequently go hand in hand. Could you imagine the relief that people would have felt in a situation like that if someone appeared on the scene who could heal the disease? Could you imagine the hope that that would have brought? Finally, here's someone who wasn't infected by the plague, 
but rather whose life was infectious, so to speak. Whose health was contagious, so to speak. I suspect that if that one appeared on that stage, then hope and love would have begun to work against fear and malice. We're invited to consider sin as a sickness. That's plainly in the text, right? I'm not making that up. In Adam, all are infected with a sickness that leads to death. No one is immune. You're all sick. You all have this sickness in you. The silly thing is, sometimes we pretend like we don't, and that leads to all sorts of trouble. The reality is that our sinfulness is worse than any illness, any disease conceivable. But in God's infinite mercy, he has sent a true physician. One who is not only able to cure from the sickness of sin, but like any true craftsman worth his salt, he delights in working his craft. The Lord Jesus Christ is one who delights to heal. He says, for this very reason I came, it sits at the heart of his very purpose, beloved. Here we see him heal Matthew. No slight sinner. I would guess he healed a number of Matthew's friends. We have very good reason to suspect that. If you're following Christ this morning, he has healed you. That's wonderful. If you're not following Christ, be sure you're sick. And that's hard. The disease that you have leads to an end worse than death. That's hard. But the good news is, is that there is a true physician who has come to heal and therein display the excellencies of our God who freely heals those sick with sin, beloved. We also see in this episode a danger greater than the sickness of sin in a strange way. Did you feel that? The great danger confronting all of us now in this age of the great physician is less that we are sick and more in insisting that we're not sick. In the insistence that we're not sick, there is a double danger. For all are sick. <laughs> but the insistence that one is not places one very far indeed from the halls of life. This too is a danger, beloved, confronting all of us. It is, in fact, a unique danger to us as a religious community, as Christ has already instructed us. And so once more, we're postured in humility, a humility that is appropriate to the sick before the great physician. And may the Lord press upon our hearts this very morning the excellencies of this physician and our ongoing need for him, beloved, not as those who were once sick, but as those who in a very real sense contend with this sickness until the day when life is all in all.
when Christ returns. The good news is that this position is to be had in faith, for he is near to those who call on him in faith. So let's consider this morning our sickness and the great physicians. First, the Lord is powerful to heal. So we see in verse 9, he doesn't say this directly, but it's what clearly plays out. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. The Lord here calls Matthew. We know he's a tax collector. Tax collectors were despised throughout the region. Not just like you despise the IRS because they take your money, but because they were actually corrupt and greedy and all sorts of darkness attended them. They were notorious for their greed, notorious for their corruption, notorious for their treacherousness. And they lived as the dissolute with the wealth that they had. They occupied the fringes of society. You Get a sense of that as scripture uses the phrases tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes. You get this window into this dark world of wealth and illicit pleasure that exists just beyond decent society, what's acceptable. We know the dark worlds constantly open up on the margins. There's still money to be had there. There's still pleasure to be had there, but exists in a shadowy realm. It's this world of money and pleasure beyond the bounds of what's decent. I know the best window I could think of was something like a scene from Batman, like Gotham City. It was these dark clubs where corrupt politician and organized crime and prostitution rings were thriving. That seems to be something like the world at the margins that opens up here. There is money, there is pleasure, there's darkness there. It is a dark world, and it's one which is not so easy to leave. Anyone who has tasted of pleasure knows that it sets its hooks in deep, does it not? Anyone who is drunk from this well, anyone who has seen others drink from this well, knows that it sets its hooks in deep. That one does not just leave that world. It certainly fuels a dissatisfaction, but that dissatisfaction has a certain staying power, if you will. It's not easy to leave this darkness unless, of course, God speaks light into your heart. And that's exactly what we see happen here with Matthew. It happens like that. My children are listening to R.C. Sproul's The King Without a Shadow. The king asks his wise men, how fast does light move? It's faster than an instant, he says. How quick is the darkness dispelled? He says, it's faster than an instant. It's faster than a fraction of a second. It's faster, it's faster than is conceivable. That's how quickly light swells. And that's what happens here. You watch a heart that is dark. Give way to the light at the power of the word of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, beloved. This new creation, let there be light, is what Paul marvels at in 2 Corinthians 
The God who spoke light into darkness is the one who has shown his glory in your hearts as he has spoken it in the face of Christ. That's what happens in every new creation heart, beloved. That's what we see happen in Matthew here. We see the power of grace to set a sinner free. We see the power of light to dispel darkness. We see the power of life to dispel death. We see the power of hope to dispel despair. And it is beautiful, beloved. We see in Matthew's call the excellencies of our Savior who came not to call those who were ready to follow him, but those who were far from him, indeed deep entrenched into darkness. It's just another iteration of what Paul says. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit. The same Spirit hovering over those waters when God said, let there be light in the word brought to fruition by the Spirit is the same Spirit who attended the call of the Lord Jesus Christ into the darkness of your heart. When he said, come with me, and you actually followed him, beloved. It's striking that Paul says, such were some of you. I thought that was interesting as I revisited that text. Such were some of you, by which he does not mean some of you were sinners and some of you weren't. Some of you were washed and some of you didn't need to be washed. That's not what he means. He means some of you were flagrant and notorious and open sinners. That's what he means. but you were washed. And this to the praise of his glorious grace. I trust you can see that there's a world of encouragement for us in this simple call. Mark that the blood of Christ can cleanse from the foulest sin. The blood of Christ can make the foulest heart clean. The deepest darkness gives way to the purest light at God's grace and mercy. There's encouragement for us in that because I trust you're going to come to terms with the fact that you are not a small sinner. That the darkness is relentless and deep and quite dark. And you know it. You've experienced it. You're complicit in it. So it's encouraging for us to see the one who is light and at whose word the darkness flees, beloved. Christ is mighty to save, not slight sinners, but egregious sinners. It's also encouragement for us as we look around at our friends and loved ones who may still be pretty deeply entrenched in the darkness. It's a good reminder that what we think is possible is not what is possible with the Lord. As J.C. Ryle reminds us, all things are possible with Christ. With Christ.
Christ, nothing is impossible. He can take a tax collector and make him an apostle. He can change any heart. And so Pastor Ryle encourages us, pray on, speak on, labor on to do good to souls, even the souls of the worst. For we have no slight hope that the Lord brings out of darkness, beloved. Psalm 29, verse 4, the voice of the Lord is mighty. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. It seems to me that we can be given to hopelessness in this regard. We view sinners and we somehow conclude they're beyond the reach of grace. He'll never come to the Lord. Such thing is not only in flagrant defiance of the plain testimony of Scripture, it's in flagrant defiance of your own experience with grace. <laughs> because you've been brought to the Lord. Second, we can also mark that if the Lord has rescued you from this deep and flagrant life of sin, give thanks. <laughs> and let the recollection of the darkness from which he's called you fuel your humility. Matthew here doesn't shrink back from recording for us what is undoubtedly a pretty shameful past. We get that sense as we meet his associates in the very next section. Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. This was the world he inhabited. This is the gospel writer, beloved. And he says, yeah, I was among them. They were my friends. I mean, you'd have to be pretty naive to think that somehow he was just occupying that world without drinking deeply of the darkness. He says, no, that was my world from which this Lord saved me. And he records it here with a blush, not a boast, in order that the grace may be magnified. So if you've been brought from that life, blush and boast in the cross of Christ by which you've been crucified to that world and that world has been crucified to you. His name be praised. And if the Lord has kept you from such open and flagrant debauchery, give thanks. Be sure that it's not because you are without sin. <laughs> be sure that it's not because your heart isn't capable of it, but rather it is to promote his many-faced kindness by which he snatches some from such a flagrant exercise of sin and by which he keeps others from exercising what their hearts are capable of. All of it to the praise of his goodness and grace, beloved. The Lord is mighty to save, make no mistake. And we see that in Matthew's call. And it's no wonder he serves with great joy, which is what we see next. One who is saved is delighted to serve. Verse 10. And Jesus reclined at table in the house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners were coming and reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Usually I like to keep each gospel account as its own story, as its own particular witness, but this one's really interesting to compare alongside Luke's account in particular because you learn that Matthew's quite modest. Matthew's the one who threw the feast. It's Matthew's house. Matthew doesn't say that. <laughs> Luke tells us that. Matthew's rather reticent, but what we see in that is 
that everything that Matthew had, everything that Matthew was, was now at the disposal of the Lord. That all of his wealth, which formerly went to advancing his own pleasure, was now at the behest of the king advancing the king's pleasure. And I imagine that was the easiest sacrifice Matthew ever made, as being rescued from darkest night. Some have gone on to note that, interestingly, Matthew's former profession actually prepared him. He would have been multilingual, fluent in a number of different languages as a tax collector. He would have been a meticulous record keeper as a tax collector. One wonders if even the poignancy of the financial metaphors regarding sin in Matthew's gospel find a particular resonance because Matthew understood what it was to be in debt have books balanced, so to speak. All of which is to say that everything that Matthew was and everything that Matthew had was now employed in the glory and the purpose of the king. It's a good reminder of us that sin is the corruption and the perversions of the gifts that God gives. And that when he redeems us, everything that he has given us now serves his purposes. The abilities that you have, the particular outward estate that he has given you, all of it now is employed in the service of this one who has given you everything, beloved. The plain suggestion here is that Matthew goes and he tells all of his former acquaintances about Jesus. That's the plain implication from the text. Many tax collectors and sinners were coming and reclining at table with Jesus and his disciples. Now, if you can remember those early days of coming to faith, I don't, know, I don't think everyone in here was raised Presbyterian. Some of you had an experience probably similar to Matthew, where there was a rather dramatic transfer from one iteration of life to another iteration of life. And there seems to be something particularly exciting about those early days. It, you just can't help but talk about this king. You can't help it. It's like you're newly in love. You've fallen in love, and you're just gushing about your beloved. I can actually remember coming back from Ukraine uh, and meeting up with some former high school friends of mine. None of us were Christian in high school, and I was very surprised that a whole group of them had been called and were following Christ now. And as I learned what happened it turned out that God saved one of them, and he just couldn't stop talking about it. <laughs> and through that, he saved a lot of them. And that is lovely. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? We find something good, and we talk about it. You read a good book, you incessantly talk about it. You see a good movie, you find a good recipe, a good bottle of wine, whatever it is, there's something deep inside of us that drives us to spread the word, so to speak, about these good things. How natural when the best of things finds us, that we then turn and share it with others, declaring the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ, God found in grace and mercy, the beauty of holiness and the power to set apart. How wonderful 
I hope you still have opportunities to share the gospel with those around you. I hope you're still praying and earnestly seeking opportunities to share the best of things, the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel with those whom God has providentially placed in your life. I think it does make a certain amount of sense that there would be an explosion of this at the very outset, much like that newly in love couple that just can't stop gushing about each other. And then that gives way to a more ordinary life of Christian witness. But make no mistake, beloved, we still have the best thing. And people are in desperate need of it. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the King who is worthy, the only one who can satisfy. I imagine that was part of Matthew's apologetic. Hey, guys, you know how we've never, ever been satisfied drinking from the depths of this darkness? You know how we've blown all this money on the best food, the best drink, whatever pleasure can be found? Well, it turns out there's a book about that in Ecclesiastes. And it turns out I found the one who can satisfy. Why don't you come and meet him? And they came. Interestingly, they took up the cup and they took up the meat. Those things which can't bring satisfaction in the presence of the one who brought satisfaction. Beloved, this is the gospel that we have. And make no mistake, the world is still ragingly dissatisfied, though they know it not. And Christ alone is the one who satisfies, beloved. That is a true testimony for who he is. And notice how that's exactly the portrait that we find here. Matthew doesn't tell about an experience that he has. He introduces them to a person. Christ sits at the center of this table. That's the image. It's sort of like this magnet. And the sinners and the tax collectors came and were reclining with him at table. Matthew falls out of the picture entirely. Jesus comes to the fore. And that's the only thing we have to tell our neighbors, loved ones, the lost. It's not about us. It's about him. Presenting him as the savior, as God's saving purpose, as the fountain of grace and mercy, as the true physician. So let us continue to look for those opportunities. Let us continue to seek God's wisdom, not to let them pass. And let us seek that provision of the Spirit, which points to Christ, which would have him exalted in the eyes of all to the praise of God's glory and grace. And let us also beware of our judgmental hearts. We see next a truly evil face. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus reclines at table with these notorious sinners, and the religious leaders are indignant. If we see in this scene the Lord's tenderness to the lost, it is all the lovelier next to the cruelty of the merciless. John's already called the Pharisees to repent, interestingly, in John chapter 3. He calls them to repent and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And here we see that they have not. They don't view themselves as in need of what John brings. They don't view themselves as in need of what the 
sense of their own sin, and they are particularly attentive to the sins of others. And this places them in a dreadfully dangerous position. Beware that tendency. Beware that tendency, beloved. The hypersensitivity to the sins of others and the glossing over of your own sin. It is perhaps the greatest danger facing all of us. Do you hear that? Can you feel it? I hope you can feel it. Notice the ugliness on display here in these so-called religious leaders. Notice their cowardice. They don't go to the Lord. They go after his disciples like wolves trying to pick off sheep. They're chirping in the ears of the disciples, staying in the darkness, not addressing the one whom they should be addressing. They're cowards. You can notice also their insincerity. They ask a question, but they don't really ask a question, do they? They use their question as intending to revile. They don't really want to know anything. They're snakes disguising their true intention. Well did John call them a brood of vipers. They're seeking to lead the disciples astray through their insinuations. Notice also their arrogance. They assume that they know what is going on. Never mind that this man heals and teaches in such a way that proves his excellencies at every turn. These men glance upon a situation and they make their conclusions and their accusations because they know, of course. And thus, last, notice their malice. They impute the worst motives to what they see happening. Right? They impute the worst motives to the best of men. And not only that, they don't reserve their malice for the Lord. They despise human beings. They look at these sinners as vermin. You go back to Kristen Lavren's data, and you can feel that the fear of the sick goes hand in hand with viewing them as a threat and thus having nothing but contempt for them. Because what you view as a threat, you are positioned to hate. That's how these men viewed fellow sinners. And therein lies the repugnance of their action. That somehow they don't see that we've all fallen in Adam. (laughs) Somehow they don't see that they've been recipients of grace and mercy as those who are in covenant with the Lord. They have the problem that Jonah had, don't they? Indignation that the Lord would be merciful to another, forgetting that the very mercy of God is what you're utterly dependent upon. There's an obtuseness to it, an absurdity to it, a grotesqueness to it, and this is our particular vulnerability as the religious beloved makes No mistake. Much sinfulness filled Matthew's home that day. But the furthest from the kingdom were not the tax collectors and the prostitutes. It was the religious. Christ is unapologetic about this. So what do we say to this? Again, we're reminded that religious hypocrisy 
is some of the worst and most dangerous of sin. Jesus has already taught us this in the Sermon on the Mount, and here he's illustrating it even further. Even more dangerous than anger, lust, greed, is the delusion of self-righteousness. The dangerous tendency of the heart to think that we, no, I, deal with God on a basis other than grace and mercy. And the inevitable posture of that heart towards others is contempt, inevitably. And it's repugnant. But we can also see in their reviling the excellencies of our king. John Chrysostom observes that the Lord willingly takes on a bad reputation for the purpose of bringing salvation to sinners. One of my favorite scenes in Anna Karenina is when Kitty goes with Levin to care for Levin's disreputable brother. Levin's brother is in a filthy hotel. He's taken a fallen woman as his companion. He's dying of a wasting disease. It is a scene that is full of darkness and sickness. And Levin wants to keep his new bride, his innocent and beloved wife, from such an iteration of fallenness. But Kitty, in her Christian love and in her love for her husband, won't stand for it. She insists upon going, and not only does she go, she rolls up her sleeves and she tends to the dying man, bringing warmth and compassion and the breath of life into this dark scene. Beloved, the very reason they despised him is the reason we adore him, because he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed to call you brother. They're indignant that he would associate with sinners. And in his association with sinners, we have life, beloved. The very reason they hate him is the reason we adore him. For in his lowliness, we mark our salvation. Because it wasn't just a bad reputation that she took upon herself. It was being numbered among the transgressors. It was being made a curse upon the cross to drink the wrath which our sin deserved bring us into his marvelous life. The reason they despised him is the reason we adore him. Do you tell me when I magnify Christ as the inexhaustible fountain of mercy and grace, which I will extol until the end of my days, beloved, what happens in your heart? Does it shade with darkness at the whispers of the devil he talks too much about mercy he talks too much about grace or do you see in that the light of life the reason we adore him beloved the reason we can come to him what say you you know your heart and the lord knows your heart we can close last with the merciful physician verses 11 and 12 12 and 13. 
But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You can mark the excellencies of our king in so many ways in this. They're plain words. Once more, we get the purpose for which he has come. That's what he says here. I came fill in the blank. When Jesus tells us the purpose for which he came, our ears should be up. He's telling us why he came. He came to call sinners beloved. And there's good news in that. There's remarkable news in that because we are sinners. This statement of his purpose rises to some of those loftiest and most excellent statements. His name shall be Jesus, for he has come to save his people from their sins, beloved. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. But I'm struck that even at this early juncture with the Pharisees, he's still dealing with them in kindness. He hasn't written them off entirely. He hasn't pronounced the woes yet. He's going to pronounce woe at the end of his ministry. But this is still early. He's still dealing even with them in a certain kindness. He tells them, he says, go and learn. He says, there's hope for you. Go and learn. You're on the wrong track entirely. You're not close. But go and learn. There's still hope, even for you religious hypocrites. That's encouraging because, again, the Lord is rich in mercy. It's a variegated mercy here. We can see it playing out on all sides. And that makes sense because he's here extolling the mercy of God. And so the sinners and tax collectors who are coming, these notorious, those whom the decent won't associate with, he says, these are the very ones I came to save. And to the religious hypocrites, even here, he doesn't write them off. He says, you're in great need. You're far, but there's still hope. Go and learn what this means. But make no mistake, I think that would have been hard for them. I mean, this is the religious elite. It'd be like someone coming to me and be like, you need to read Tolstoy. I'd be like, I've read Tolstoy. He says, you don't know. You're ignorant. You need to learn. And they're like, who are you? You're some wandering nobody. And you're going to tell us? I've got a PhD from Yale. Who are you? You're from Capernaum. <laughs> Nobody even heard of that. Been to Cornell. Ever heard of it? This would have been hard for them. But it's still kindness, beloved. We can mark again that the true evidence that we possess knowledge is what, according to this? Go and learn what this means. They're like, well, no, we, like I know Hosea. I know, I know the whole book. I, I, I've memorized Hosea. They knew Hosea. They could tell you more about the reign of King Jeroboam than I can tell you. He says, go and learn. You don't know. Because the evidence of knowledge is love. Do you want to know if you know anything? Again, gauge your mercy. Gauge your love. That's exactly what he assumes here. They would have been rich in so-called knowledge, but little in true knowledge yielding love, beloved. 
So he's warning us now. What do you know? You tell me what you know. Tell me what you know. Tell me what you know right now. Prove it. Produce what you love. That's how much progress you've made in knowledge, beloved. And that's humbling. It's humbling for all of us, isn't it? But he continues to deal with us in that kindness. Because what he sets forth so plainly here is the mercy of our God. Make no mistake, this isn't just the Son who abounds in mercy. This is the Father who abounds in mercy here. He quotes Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In particulars of that situation is that they were meticulous in ritual observance, and yet they abounded in cruelty towards others. And so the word of the prophets has always been, I care nothing for your meticulous observance of ritual if it is paper mache over a cruel heart. I don't care how well you do the song and dance if at the very core of your being is the corruption of cruelty and malice. I desire mercy. I delight in mercy, not sacrifice. Beloved, make no mistake, the reason that you're a believer is because the Lord looked upon you in mercy. The reason the Father delights in the Son is in no small part due to the mercy that he showed to the helpless, to the needy, to sinners of a notorious ilk. This is why the Father delights in the Son. Beloved, if the Lord looked upon your sinful condition with such tenderness, how much more reason do we have to look upon sinners with tenderness? Pity. An earnest desire to do them good. And I'm not talking about that sort of pity which is just a thin veil for contempt. You know we're capable of that as well, don't you? I'm not talking about that kind of pity. That perverse delight in sort of being just slightly above another, be like, oh, you need some help, don't you? Good luck with that. You keep your ugly pity. It's just an iteration of cruelty. It's nothing. It's worse than nothing. True tenderness, true compassion, issuing forth in an earnest desire to do good to another. This is the heart of Christ, beloved. One who in true mercy became man. One who in true mercy went to the cross. The vision of loveliness on display here is remarkable. But we can also mark the Savior's power and the hope that he brings. He sets himself up as the physician. A physician who can heal. The Lord didn't come just to deal with the guilt of sin and nothing regarding the power of sin. The pardon that Christ purchases 
ushers us into the kingdom of life in which he is now teaching us to walk and in which one day we will run when he returns and light and life are all in all. William Bridge, one of the pastor theologians at the Westminster Assembly writes, do not come to Christ that you may live wickedly, nor think to be first holy that you may come to Christ. Come unto Christ that you may be holy. Seek the Lord and his righteousness in this respect. And mark the encouragement and the hope there is for us in this. As we continue to grow under sin's residual influence, even still we know that not all is lost. For there is one who brings true forgiveness and true life that works against the illness of sin, which he has displaced from the throne of our hearts. Maybe it doesn't look exactly as you think it ought to or exactly as you hope it ought to. But you can be sure that this one is full of grace and truth. And that shapes our hearts, both towards him and towards others who are in need of the same healing which we've received. Towards him and that we are in need of his ministrations of life until the day we die, beloved. Towards others and that we know there is one who can cure the deadly disease which would take the heart of all of us were it not for the good physician. Let us pray that more and more come to see the excellencies of this king and that we never forget our need for him as long as he gives us life. Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord, for the excellencies of your gift. We thank you, O Lord, for the mercy you've extended unto us. We pray that you would create in us an earnest desire to see good come to the lost, that you would posture us, O Lord, before the lost in true compassion, which would keep our hearts from fear and contempt, which we know is foolishly and ever at hand. We thank you for the riches of mercy on display in Christ and the perfection of his life pleasing unto you from first until last. We thank you for these things. In Christ's name, amen.